Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this episode of Hidden Histories. Today I interview Joanna Katrine Friedrich's daughter. She has written Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, which is a fantastic new book about what a woman's role was in the Viking era, how women were expected to act or what they were expected to do. She draws on the latest historical and archaeological evidence, but she also looks into the Norse sagas and myths that tell the stories of war, strife, loyalty, murder and betrayal. All in all, her book is a fantastic story. I hope that you enjoy the podcast. So Joanna, welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I am so excited for this podcast because I am obsessed with Vikings and particularly Viking women, because up until fairly recently, I don't think there's been a huge amount of research done on women of the Viking world. And your new book, Valkyrie, Women of the Viking World, does just that. So I just wanted to, to, to check with you. The term Viking is... It's not, um, it's not a noun, is it? It's more of a verb. It's, the, it's to be Viking, to go Viking. Is that correct? Yeah, in English um, usage, modern English, it's kind of um, become uh, a verb. It's sort of used quite differently. But um, in Old Norse sources, it's used as a noun and it's used as like a label about someone who is a Viking. Um, and you, you can't really use it as a verb in Old Norse, but um, it kind of has more of a loose meaning probably than what it's used like now in modern English. So it didn't mean necessarily that you were the kind of stereotypical grizzly man who went off um, to sort of raid and pillage. Um, It could kind of mean that you you were someone who traveled and you went abroad and um, that would have sometimes involved like land taking or um, like hunting whales and then bringing back, you know, the, the stuff that they harvested off that or um, trade. So there were kind of all, all kinds of things that you could be as a Viking, um, but it very often probably in, involved um, raids as well. Okay. Um, and what did that, with that terminology, what did that mean for women? Could women be described as Viking? We don't really know whether women would have used that about themselves um, because we have very few written sources um, from, you know, from the Viking Age itself. And um, there are some um, runestones which are 
these stones that people um, put up like in nature when um, they were usually placed kind of at crossroads. So you would have seen them when you were walking from one kind of important place to another. And they would put these inscriptions on the rune stones. And that's like more or less the only writ written sources that we have from the Vikings themselves or, or from the Scandinavians who lived um, in this period, the Norse people. So we, we just know that women were doing quite a lot of the same things as the men. And um, we find archaeological evidence um, from all kinds of places where the men were. And um, some of this evidence um, is quite gendered. So um, if we find the kind of brooch that like women wore and no, you know men didn't wear those sorts of brooches um, and we found spindle whirls, um, so women's uh, work was textile work most of the time. So we know that the women were off um, taking land and doing trade in far off places with the men. So the women were moving in the same way as men were, yeah. essentially. Yeah, I mean, they might, there might not have been as many of them, um, but they were there. What part of Scandinavia did Vikings come from specifically, or was it all over Scandinavia? Yeah, it seems to have been, um, you know, an all-over development in Sweden, Norway and Denmark, and then people would um, go off in different directions depending on... So, like, in Sweden, they tended to kind of um, go, like, down the rivers in Russia and Ukraine and Poland and um, because that was just kind of mo most natural for them to go east, um, whereas, like, in Denmark, they they would go, like, west um, and end up in England and Scotland, maybe, and then um, the Norwegians, just being further north, they would um, often like go maybe to Scotland and then the Faroes and Iceland. And, and so it, you know, obviously people mixed, but those were kind of the general patterns probably. So within, within Viking society, what sort of roles did women take on? You mentioned spinning before and um, needlework. Mm, yeah, the, I mean, the, the women were probably running the household sort of quite generally and especially when the men were away um, they were doing a lot of hard work um, but in general um, the, the kind of work that they were doing most of the time was probably textile work because just the amount of work that you needed to do just to make one shirt um, or you know an outfit that was just um, weeks and weeks um, so it was just um so time consuming to keep your family like clothed and um, fed. And then um, in the Viking Age as well, there was all this demand for sales. So if you were quite resourceful um, and hardworking, you could probably um, have like a sort of side business, um, maybe doing doing te textile work for sales as well. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know how much time we have. I can, I can go deeper into just what, like, why it was so much work to to get from wool to a ready-made textile. Well, I do actually. I mean, funnily enough, I've actually held some Viking textile work before because I've, um, I did something at the Viking Museum. Have you been to the Jorvik Museum? Yeah, in, in your yeah, it's fantastic. yeah, it's amazing museum. <laughs> actually many years ago many many years ago I used to work there when I was oh, a student oh really um, <laughs> yeah but um but more recently I went there and I 
Um, and somebody's kind enough to show me an example of some of the um, textile work that, that they found in one of the um, one of the excavations. Mm. And it's so intricate. It's absolutely amazing and so strong. I mean, it's the sort of thing that you just, you know, you'd pay a huge amount of money for today just because it's so, um, so much work and time has clearly gone into yeah. it. It's just really astonishing. Like, I will be the first to admit, I just really didn't I hadn't really thought about just the amount of effort I mean I knit myself so I I do kind of know how long it takes to knit a garment and I mean I I obviously don't sit there full time and do it but um it you know it would take me several months to make like a cardigan or something um but that that means that I already like I buy the wool um but to have like a you know a sheep and I would have to you know, get the wool off the sheep and, and like, you yeah. know, um, pick out all the bits of straw and everything and comb it and spin it. And then when when you're weaving, I mean, you have to set up the loom and just think about like all of the threads that you would have to like set up before you even started weaving. And and then like just the, the weaving itself taking forever. So it's certainly not fast fashion, is it? No, I know. And, and it's just something that I've become more interested in, I suppose, um, just with with the kind of reaction that we have maybe now to fast fashion and um, people yeah. people kind of wanting to be more sustainable and thinking more about like where our clothes come from. And so it's just all put you know, things more into perspective, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, and like also like with knitting now, for example, it's it's kind of this um, almost like a hygge, you know, the Scandinavian term for like having it nice and, and it's like a lifestyle. But like for these women, it was not like cups of tea and candles and knitting. It was just hard work and their, you know, their hands would have been just arthritic when they were like not very old and like just... It was just so much work. <laughs> and you've um, very co- very closely studied the sagas mm. for your book. And the sagas, I mean, for those of you, for those who are listening who aren't familiar with what a saga is, can you explain what these, um, what these Norse sagas were? Yeah, so the sagas were written down by Icelanders mostly um, in the 13th centuries and 14th century. And they are kind of long prose accounts, a little bit like novels. They are really kind of well-written. They they sort of conform to our tastes. They have a lot of, like they're, they're stylistically, they're just really fascinating. And they, so they, they're being written down several hundred years after the Viking Age. Um, so we can't really take them completely at face value. Like they're not eyewitness accounts, but um, because um, they tend to kind of represent society in a very similar way we can sort of trust them to a large extent on the general social structures and gender roles and like what people were sort of thinking about and how they um like their their values how they saw each other and what they prioritized um and then you know in terms of like how historically accurate they are like sometimes you know people have found archaeological evidence that kind of you know, matches with what a saga will say. So, so they they are really really interesting. But then, you know, the the people who wrote them were also um, authors, and so they they made up conversations, and you know, they made people like their characters 
larger than life. And, um, and so, yeah, like we have to kind of analyze them with a grain of salt. But still they provide some, some entertaining detail on, on Viking life. Were there many, do, do women feature very much in the sagas or is it mostly a masculine genre? It's, um, it's re- it really varies um, by sort of author and subgenre. So, um, for example, the King's sagas, which are more interested in the kind of um, politics in Norway and like kings and queens and um, factions right, having rivalries in Norway, like that is a very masculine world. And we um, see women in kind of quite limited roles. And like often it's just like, you know, a woman is brought up just to mention like who she was married to or something. And, and yeah. um, but then when you get into the so-called sagas of Icelanders, that's those sagas are about the people who settled um, in Iceland, um, often from Norway and their descendants. And they kind of often fo- follow these kind of sprawling feuds and like several generations. Yeah. Um, and there, I think that the authors kind of, they have a little bit more freedom to put their own mark on the characters. Um, and so some saga authors, like the the author of the saga of the Laxardal people, or Laxdala saga, like it's called in Old Norse, that author in particular seems to be really interested in women and like why women's roles are more limited and and sort of problematizing it and um so there's like one character who in the beginning who who, who's a woman and she goes to Iceland and settles by herself and like takes land and she's this kind of matriarch and she always like (laughs) reminds me a little bit of like Olena Tyrell if you're a Game of Thrones fan (laughs) she's just I am definitely a Game of Thrones fan (laughs) yeah like you just do not mess with this woman (laughs) yeah and then there's this um there's another woman who um kind of her husband treats her really badly and divorces her in a kind of scumbag way and she kind of goes off in the middle of the night and um, attacks him in bed and like wounds him like she doesn't kill him or anything but um, it, it kind of feels like there's a lot of poetic justice because when the man is kind of asked asked like aren't you gonna go and like avenge yourself and he's like no I deserved it <laughs> um, and you wouldn't really get that kind of thing in some of the other sagas which are just not really interested in women and um so it just depends so do you think that women were in some way even though their roles were more limited they were treated fairly equally or even revered rather than considered to be a weaker sex um i think like you know everything else in in life it depended a little bit you know just from family to family i i think in some pockets of society like the men were probably not very keen on having women anywhere near the decision making or anything but it seems that that there were certainly a lot of men in North society who were willing to make space for women and maybe because you know if they were away for long periods of time then like coming back and then like telling a woman who's been running you know, the show for months on end or years, um, telling her that like suddenly she just doesn't get any say in anything and she's supposed to be subservient, like that might not have worked out so well. 
In the sagas, there's also a lot of conflict, isn't there? And we do know that conflict was part of, well, part of Viking life and a way of, of life. What did that mean for a woman? And I I have to ask you, did, did, did the shield maiden exist? Yeah, well, if we kind of start with the first half of the question, um, the, the conflicts... I guess you could separate them into going off and, you know, being a Viking, going to England or Ireland or somewhere and, um, you know, stealing stuff from monasteries. Um, and I mean, I, I doubt that there were that many women who were involved in maybe that side of things, but there were probably some. And then you have the kind of more, more sort of feud like, um, conflicts, maybe, at home in Scandinavia, and they sort of seem to spring from um, a system where, like, m- m- sort of life in general, but especially masculinity, is extremely precarious. And so, if anyone like insults you, you have to kind of um, answer back, you know, twofold. And um, if if you don't like sort of display how strong you are all the time, then you just make yourself very vulnerable. And so. It seems that, or or the the way that the sagas represent this um, system is, is basically that like women's role in that is to kind of goad the men, and um, if they aren't like being strong enough, they sort of go into this role of like shaming them and you know telling them they're not manly enough and and um, and th- like that always used to confuse my students because they would be like, why are they pushing their own men into like going into some sort of violent conflict when, um, you know, their, their husband or their son might die um, if they, you know, if they go off and, and, and attack someone because they insulted them. And, um, and I think that kind of goes back to like women's um, position, like not being as strong as men's. And so they're kind of reliant on the men um, holding up the family as a whole. And so the shield maiden is this amazing literary figure. And so this woman that I mentioned before who goes and attacks her husband because he divorces her, she like she kind of isn't that great with weapons. So she, she's not really able to wield them very well. The, the kind of the saga makes the point of, of making that clear. Um, but then in there is this un, other subgroup of sagas where there are like real shield maidens who, like there's one called Hervor in the saga of Hervor. And she tells her, her mother, she's like an only child. And so she tells the mother that she wants to be a Viking and please um, outfit me like you would a son. And so um, the mother gives her, you know, the whole Viking kit, like the sword and everything and like a ship. And then she goes off and like, goes off raiding and she's a Viking for a while. And then like she comes back one day and decides she doesn't want to do that anymore. And the saga then says, and and then she like took up her embroidery again. And so there's this kind of really interesting um, um, blurring of of gender boundaries there. And and then while she's a Viking, she actually like has a male name and all of the pronouns in the saga switch to male. So like she, it's like she's just suddenly this other character um, and there's there doesn't seem to be like a con- concept, at least in that particular saga, of like a, a woman 
like still being able to retain her femininity and be a Viking, if you see what I mean. So if you are a Viking, you are male, whether or not your body is male. Yeah, so you can move between those two different gendered spheres, but you had to take on the gender that you were essentially occupying. Yeah, exactly. Um, At least to this particular saga author. And then, I mean, it's really hard to kind of try to interpret um, these graves where, like, there are these skeletons that have been um, sexed female and they're in these graves. It's, it's, um, like, you know, with lots of weapons in them. And I I will... That was quite a recent archaeological discovery, was it? Yeah. I I mean, so the the big famous grave that um, has been kind of sparking the debate is actually it was excavated in the um, the late 19th century. So um, what's new is that they did a DNA test of the bones and the bones were female. And I think there's like um, a similar test being done on another grave. And I, I sort of hasten to add that these are like two graves out of thousands of graves that have been excavated um, from the Viking Age. Um, and they sort of to me, they seem to get like disproportionate attention. Yeah, so the that's sort of what what's new um, in in that sp- sphere, the archaeological sphere. But the term shield maiden is a modern term. Yeah, it's not something that appeared in the sagas. And it's no, not no, it it, that... it does appear in the sagas. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, but but the kind of the the question is whether. It's a translation of the word Amazon, and whether these authors um, have have uh, decided to translate it that way. Okay, so the title of your book is Valkyrie. Who were the Valkyries, and why have you chosen that as your title? I love it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean, it's really, uh, they, I mean, they're just absolutely these striking figures um, from Norse mythology. Um, They appear in lots and lots of Norse poetry and they are supernatural um, and they sort of, they have different manifestations, I guess, like different um, people had different ideas about them. And they, so they hover in the air when there's a battle often. And sometimes they seem to be like on horseback and there's, for example, there's one poet um, who describes this Valkyrie as like um, having lots of blood on her armor because um, there's just all this blood like spattering on her. And um, and then sometimes they're really greedy for blood and they're kind of macabre and um, just scary and unpleasant, really. And um, and then sometimes like they're more sort of romantic and and beautiful and like sexually alluring and so on, um, but they um, they seem to be um, sort of figures that people project different ideas about like how they feel about war and about death and um, they are like Odin's maidens. That's how they are often referred to in the poetry and the mythology. And so they, it seems that they get sent by Odin to um, battles and they get to choose the slain. So they choose who gets to go um, to Odin 
and um, to Valhalla and basically feast and um, have fun for the rest of their sort of undead life, I guess. Um, and they, they, I mean, these are like these figures who have been, you know, they've just been fascinating readers and, and audiences for hundreds of years. And I suppose, um, like in Wagner's operas, they're kind of the most famous. There's this ride of the Valkyrie. I don't know if if, mm. if that rings a bell, but like that kind of... Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's amazing. You can Your description of them in the air, you can kind of see why that is so inspirational because it's such a powerful image yeah and it's it's an image of strength and you know being assertive and having all this mobility and freedom and agency you know they get to choose who lives and dies um and so I mean I I also say in the book they kind of help rationalize like um who who dies so it you know I guess in battle it can be quite random um who who survives and who doesn't. And there are all these like spears flying out of the air. And um, sometimes the diction in the poetry calls them spear girls. And so I, my interpretation of this was basically that they're kind of a way of rationalizing. Like if your brother or son um, dies in battle, that it was the decision of a Valkyrie and, you know, this, this, this maiden of Odin. And um, it's like a, a higher power, um, so maybe that that helped some people. What I find really interesting about that is that your description of these these women 
of these Valkyries wearing armour, but they are they are very feminine, um, which is the opposite to the the woman in the saga that you described, who had to either take on a masculine identity mm-hmm. or a traditionally feminine one. So it's it's interesting that is a deity the Valkyrie can um, can hold both roles, hold both genders. Yeah. Um, and sort of hover in between them somewhere and yeah. um, and have this sort of violent, um, scary aspect to them that um, isn't really allowed in the more realistic sphere. And it's like having, having them being supernatural, it kind of lets people um, imagine all sorts of things for, you know, that they can do that... Um, maybe for some people would have been some sort of escapism or like compensation <laughs> for um, for lack of maybe agency in the real world. But on the other hand, um, these kind of goading women that I was talking about before, like they have some overlap um, maybe with them because they, um, in a way, like they are the ones who send, you know, their, their family members off to a certain death sometimes and the kind of more legendary heroic sources are really preoccupied with like why do women go into this um, role and they sort of have almost like Valkyrie aspects of them. Um, it's interesting because it's almost like women women birth the men who are the powerful, the protectors, yet women also take their lives yeah, as well. Yeah, and th- there is just this kind of abject and... Uh, aspect of them and I I sort of said in the book that um, there is this sort of maybe psychological urge to you know pr- project all these more violent instincts that people have and um, you know cast them onto the woman who like she made me do it and um, it's her fault I'm just a tool and <laughs> it sort of by giving them agency it like absolves the men maybe more, you know, fr- from from enacting all kinds of, of violent acts. So what did the death of a man, say the husband or the father of, of, of women, hmm. what did that mean for women um, within that family sphere? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question because, um, like, when you got married, that was essentially when you entered, like, the, the adult sphere and you gained quite a lot of rights and um, if you were married like women usually got a dowry and so they um, and they had more right to inherit and all kinds of things um, so like getting married was usually like a good thing um, but um, losing your husband um, wasn't necessarily bad um, and they like the the, uh, the saga sort of depict women as like having all kinds of like different reactions maybe on a an emotional level but then there was this kind of ritual that or or like you had to kind of go through certain emotions you had to lament um and you had to get someone to avenge your husband usually if if he died in some sort of feud um but the sagas also have um instances where there are these widows living kind of maybe not alone but um maybe like there's one that I'm really 
fond of who lives with her daughter and um, like a, a man who's enslaved. He, he's a servant laborer. And, um, and then there's this man who kind of starts hanging around the daughter and, and you, um, you, you can't really do that without, you know, marrying them. Um, you can't cast any sort of um, aspersions on a woman's honour if, if she's supposed to. You know, it's interesting. So women still retain that quite traditional and uh, popular conception of um, honour and purity and chastity prior to, to marriage and, actual va- and actually value for, for um, men prior to, to marriage yeah absolutely and and I don't there's no sort of religious dimension to it it's just a patriarchal thing it's it's just um that the men have to control the women like in their um protection and and um if another man like gets close to your women that means that you haven't like done enough and so this woman who's in this pos- uh, position where she doesn't have a man to protect the honor of the family she resorts to magic and then bribery. And it kind of just shows that the, this saga author is kind of really preoccupied with like what happens if, you know, if you get these men who are like <laughs> essentially being antisocial and troubling you and your family and you don't have someone um, to, to enact the traditional male role, um, like what are your options and recourses and um, you don't really have a lot <laughs> a lot of options and you have you mentioned that you have looked in some of the um, archaeology behind mm. uh, Viking excavations and Viking life what 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 are some of the most um, gripping and fascinating evidence that you've uh, discovered um, that reveals what life was like for Viking women I think it was pretty well known you know, the, the sort of basic lifestyle of the Vikings, um, you know, the sort of living together as a family unit. The average family unit was like seven to 11 people usually. So it would be like a man and a woman and a few kids and maybe like a grandparent and a couple of servants. Um, and then um, I guess what fascinated me the most, um, sort of coming back to the textiles, was that there was... For example, there was this place in Norway, in this um, fjord, which is like enormously long, um, called the Sognefjord. And they excavated, I think, sort of quite recently, like maybe 10 years ago or something. And they found this kind of almost like a summer camp where people um, used to just go for the summer when um, you can have your sheep um, on pasture. And so the sheep would be grazing in like the mountains and then you could um, get the wool off them and they would be kind of processing the wool and weaving. And they they might have been making sails for the Viking ships. And then so they would hang out there in the summer and then they would just go back home to wherever they lived. And um, And I think this is maybe one of the sort of less um, studied or acknowledged um, aspects of Viking life, but it's just so important because the ships would just not have got to England and Ireland and all these places without sails. And like everyone's really fascinated with the ships and the, 
you know, with the weapons and so on. Um, But like making a sale was like, it would have taken one person four to five years just to make a sale if they worked like all day. And um, yeah, Um, so we don't really realize just how expensive it was. And, you know, it would have been really highly valued by the Vikings. And why that was so much a part of everyday life because of its value. Yeah, exactly. And um, and this was one of the things that I think surprised me and fascinated me the most, just how central this work is to the economy and to all these social changes that happen in the Viking Age. You just you wouldn't have got anywhere without these sales or without clothes. And so why, you know, why hasn't this been acknowledged more? So if somebody was going to visit, like, on the back of your book after reading, after reading your book, if somebody was to go and visit some places to get, um, to get a feel for what life was like for Viking women, where would you recommend, where would you recommend to go to? Just if, if someone wants to explore this a bit further. <laughs> I suppose um depends on time and... Um, money but I I'm from Iceland obviously and I think traveling around Iceland is fabulous um and Iceland was settled by Vikings so um it is a really good place to go if you want to kind of you know imagine yourself as a a Viking land taker and settler and but the the when I first went to Sweden I thought it was so fabulous when you kind of when you're just around somewhere like um, I went to Uppsala and right in front of the university, there are just these um, rune stones standing there. Yeah. And they just have these runes on them and they don't like say anything particularly in- interesting. Like most of the time rune stones are sort of a little bit like um, so-and-so raised this rune stone in memory of his father, or, you know, and just very prosaic inscriptions most of the time. But I just thought it was so amazing to have this direct connection um, in just in the physical landscape to someone who lived in the Viking Age. And, and maybe because they are so pro- prosaic, it makes you kind of, it reminds you that these people were, you know, ordinary people with um, their hopes and dreams and family problems. And, you know, they weren't all kind of, <laughs> like you know the stereotypes and yeah um, yeah yeah exactly physical manifestation of the viking yeah. person that's endured for a thousand years is amazing well thank you so much joanna that was absolutely fascinating and i'm oh thank I'm, you i feel like i've learned so much from that i really have oh. and um and i will certainly be reading your book and when is it when is it out when is it available for people to buy it just came out actually um, last Thursday. So great! Um, Congratulations! Thank you. Um, it's been really fascinating to see, like on Twitter, people posting pictures of it having arrived in the mail, and feels very surreal um, <laughs> when you've you know worked on something so hard and yeah. then it's yeah. just finally out. So oh, very congratulations! Um, excited. Yeah. Thank you. Great, so it's so available pleased. for people by now. Um, so go, yeah, go forth and purchase and learn all about all of these fascinating female Viking characters.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.